Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. It's great to be back from sabbatical. I want to say thank you to all the staff for all of their great work while I was away. I appreciate the fact that I can go and not worry about the place falling down or services not happening. So grateful for that. Grateful for the men who helped uh, fill the pulpit and teach while I was away. Grateful for their faithfulness and uh, grateful for yours as well. Thank you, uh, church, for giving me year after year the gift of a sabbatical. Uh, I was talking to somebody the other day whose church does not do that. And I said, well, you must not want to keep him. And they looked at me funny and I said, well, I'll tell you what, um, there are few jobs that are quite as challenging as being a lead pastor and um, there are few opportunities that you ever have just to kind of pull away and rest a while, like Jesus said to his disciples. I said, so if you really don't like the guy, then here's what you do. Don't give him a sabbatical and, and give him very little vacation and he'll go somewhere else. I guarantee it. But if you want to keep him, let him get away, let him pray, let him prepare, let him plan, and uh, you'll benefit, he'll benefit, everybody will benefit, and, and the kingdom will move forward. So whether they did it or not, I don't know, but I'm grateful to, you, to the Lord for you, and I thank you for that. So let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is going to be our passage. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 of Psalm 51. We have the Lord's Supper today. You got a uh, Lord's Supper cup, I know, when you came in, and I want to get us ready for that supper in a a, uh, very specific way today. Psalm 51. David is writing what is known as a penitential psalm. He is dealing with sin, and this is what he says. Have Mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, pause real quick. He's not saying that sex is unholy. What he's saying here is that the issue of sin in his very nature has been an issue for him from conception. We're part of a fallen race, and that fallenness starts as soon as we're conceived. We have a penchant for sin. That's all he is saying, behold, verse six, you delight in truth in the inward being. While I have this penchant towards sin in me, what you delight in is is truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me then with hyssop, verse seven, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create a clean heart in me, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now, 
As we come to the, to the Lord's Supper, almost inevitably we want to, to hear from Paul in the, his first letter to the Corinthians because he gives some very specific instructions. And he says, this is what you are to do. And he says, this is why you are to do it. He reminds us of the very first supper when the Lord gave the supper to his church as a gift. And he reminds us of that. But then he does something really important. He says, now look, there's a problem at Corinth. They're not handling the supper well because they're not handling their relationships well. They are, uh, th those who have much are lording it over those who have little, and it is not a pretty picture. So when, when they come together with these relationships all out of kilter, and they do what the supper does together, and that is to put on display the death of Jesus to celebrate his selflessness, to celebrate his sacrifice, and they're not living selfless, and they're not living sacrificially, they're really making a mockery of of what Jesus did and what Jesus came to do. And so he's saying to them, listen, you've got to stop that. But listen, let me give you a, some, some instruction to keep that from happening as you go forward. Make sure that before you enter into the, the supper that you spend some time in self-examination because with your life and together as a church, with our lives, with our lives together, we are to be displaying the life, the death, and our hope that is in Christ Jesus. And the only way we can do that is if our relationships are clean and if our relationships are clear with God and with each other. And so that's what he does. And so he says, for example, he says in 1 Corinthians 11, he says this. He says, listen, Anyone, be careful, be careful. Let a, let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Be careful for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, if we examined ourselves and dealt with ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. He disciplines us for our good. And he says, listen, just avoid that. Here, here's how you do it. Make the cross of Christ beautiful and what he's done for you, beautiful, by making sure as you live your life that you're constantly aligning your life with the cross life of Jesus. That is really the heart of his appeal because every time we gather, we proclaim the, the, uh, the death of Jesus. It's imperative that as we come to that proclamation that our lives reflect what we're proclaiming. So at our, in our church, it's always our practice before we come to uh, the supper, it's always our practice to have a time of self-examination and, uh, and, and, and to consider where we are in our relationships with each other and where we are in our relationship with the master. But here, a good question, a fair question is, what are we exactly examining ourselves for when we're examining ourselves before we come as we approach the table, as we draw near to proclaiming together what Christ has done, I would suggest three things. And, and I'd put them in the form of a question. There's three things, three questions we ought always to be asking ourselves as we approach the table. They are these. Number one, is the death of Christ central in my life? Is the death of Christ central in my life? You see, that is 
at the heart of what the supper is about. It is the centrality of the death of Jesus for sinners. That is what, what uh, 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 we anchor our lives in. It is at the very heart of who we are. Is the death of Christ central in my life? Am I living before him? And am I living with others as if he had died in my place for my sins? Am I living that way? Am I living a life worthy of his death? Am I living a cross centered life? That's the first question. The second question, that when we examine ourselves coming to the table, that, that is, I think, critical is this. Is the second coming of Christ dominant in my life? Paul says, look, you are to celebrate the death of Christ until he comes. And so we're celebrating what he did in the past. We're also celebrating what he's going to do in the future. And so part of being a follower of Christ is not only living a cross-centered life, but is living a second coming dominated kind of life. So that in every circumstance and in every situation, what we're doing is we're entering into that situation mindful of the fact that Jesus can come again at any time. Mindful of the fact that really in our heart of hearts, we want him to find us ready. We want him to find us faithful. So when the guy pulls out in front of me on Peace Haven Road, I want to have the second coming of Christ dominant in my life and my thinking so that my response is going to be dominated by the second coming of Christ. He could come again. He will come again. And it's not only, that's not only a warning. It's not only a point of warning. It's a point of celebration. So when I'm going through a hardship, when I'm going through difficult times, when I'm going through pain, disappointment, betrayal, or whatever it is I'm going through, remembering being dominated by the second coming of Christ really releases me. It really frees me in some, some ways from the burden of betrayal, from the burden of disappointment, because whatever I'm facing here and now, the second coming says to me again and again and again, you're not going to be facing that forever. You're not going to be facing that forever. I'm coming again for you. I want you to be where, with me where I am. And so it's very, very encouraging. Third question that I think is critical for preparation uh, with the supper, and that is, is the love of Christ in me in control in my life? Is the love of Christ in control in my life, especially in my relationships with others? And so just as the Lord's Supper celebrates and points to his death, his return, and the great love of Christ, the, 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 the idea is so should our lives. And so that's why those questions are so very important. Is the death of Christ central? Is the second coming dominant? And is the love of Christ in control? Is the love of Christ in control? Does the love that Christ has infused me with, his love for me, is that, if you will, uh, is that being, uh, 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 is that coming from me to others? Am I so infused with it, so filled with it, that everyone I come into contact is the recipient of the love of Christ. Not my love, but the love of Jesus for them. Do I put that on display? Really, really powerful questions that I think get us ready. To, to not live consistently before God and with others in that way, it, it, it makes less of Christ. And so Paul says it profanes Christ. It makes less of what he's done for us in our place. And it makes less of what he's promised to do for us, and it brings God's judgment or brings God's discipline, his correction, and so on and so forth. And so that's why Paul warns the Corinthians, and he warns us against sharing in the supper 
in an unworthy manner. He doesn't say, you've got to be worthy to go to the supper. He said, you've got to be careful not to go to the supper and share in the supper in an unworthy way. None of us is worthy to go to the supper. None of us is worthy of the cross of Christ. None of, the worst, uh, none of us is worthy of his broken body or his shed blood. Not one of us, but, 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 Christ has made us worthy. That's why we're able to go. As we go, though, we want to be worthy in the way that we take what he's given us. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Does that make sense in the back? The back. Does that make sense in the back? Okay. I know that makes sense to you all, right? I thought so. Yep. That's good. Now, there's, there's, another, there's another motivation, though, that I want you to see. I want to spend some time on that today. Yep, we, we want to be worthy. We want to honor Christ. Um, but I want you to see something. With that examination, asking those three questions, what we're really trying to do is we're really trying to surface the presence of sin in our lives. And because the sin before a holy God is serious, we want to surface that he says, any time in the life of a believer, when my, when my life is not cross-centered, when my, my life is not dominated by the second coming, when my life is not suffused with the love of Christ, it is inevitably because I have allowed some kind of sin, selfishness, to set itself up in my life. And so there, there, that's the point of the examination. It really, and those questions, it really surfaces the presence of sin. So the supper, and watch this with me, the supper functions in a way that helps us remember how serious sin is, how it weakens us, how it harms others, how it harms us. And, and by calling us to deal with that sin before we go to the supper, it actually strengthens us. By calling us to deal with sin before we go to the supper, it actually restores the joy that God intended for us to have. Nothing will rob the joy of a believer like the presence of sin in their lives because it immediately creates a break of fellowship with God. And so if you're a follower of Jesus and you're miserable, this is where you wanna look every single time, every single time. So the supper is actually this incredible gift from God because he wants us to know his strength. He calls us to be strong. He wants us to know his strength. The joy of the Lord, Nehemiah 8 says, is your strength. And sin, when it robs us of our joy, robs us of our strength, and we become very weak in the midst of our living and in the midst of our relationships. And so it's, it's so, such a gift. It's really a beautiful thing when you think about it, that what God calls us to do when we come to the supper is to stop, to pause, and say, what, what is the condition of my life? What's going on? What's going on in me? What's going on around me? What, what's coming from me? What's the state of my strength? Spiritual strength. What's the state of my joy? Is my life cr cross-centered? dominated by the second coming, suffused with his love and his love for others. Now, no passage in my mind shows us what it is that God wants when we're walking through that examination process like Psalm 51. It shows us what believers should do when they find sin in their lives, or perhaps better, when God shows them that sin is present, either by his Holy Spirit or by way of, a, of another believer. If God sends a Nathan into your life, uh, it can be a shock, but sometimes he will send a Nathan into your life to say, wait a minute, what are you doing? What are you doing? 
Psalm 51 also shows us that, when, that what God will do when we turn to him with the sin that he shows us. So I want you to see this with me. Look at the beginning of Psalm 51. Do you see that little statement, the little description before it? It is described as a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is huge. David was an extraordinary man. The scripture tells us that he was selected as king because he was a man who was a man after God's own heart. You read those early Psalms of his, they are rich with devotion to God, love for God. And this is a strong man. This is a warrior, but his heart is fixed on the, uh, on God and on pleasing him and living for him. He was exemplary in so many ways. His heart and his mind fully given over to, to following and doing God's will. I will to do your will, he actually says in one of his early Psalms. That's my heart. I want what you want. I will what you will. Help me to will it even more, that kind of thing. This was David. And so he was a man that, that God could trust. But like so many of us, God began to bless him and uh, he did experience victory after victory. He became a very powerful king, defeated his enemies. He came to have a great deal of wealth and, and everything that comes with being a powerful king was his. And something began to happen in David's life. He began to slip. And, and here's the reality. I'm probably telling the story of every believer in this room. God was good. God blessed. And we misused it. And where we started well or had a season of, of, of great fellowship with God, in the midst of his blessing us, we failed him. That's the, story of, that's the story of David. So here's David. And in 2 Samuel 11, this, this whole episode with Bathsheba, what we see is this. This man who was once a man after God's own heart, known for strength and godliness, has this massive heart failure. He covets another man's wife, steals her. He commits adultery. And then he effectively murders her husband in collusion with his chief of staff in an effort to try to cover up what he'd done. When the man is killed, this is, just, this is how bad it had gotten for David. He writes to his chief of staff and he says, well, that kind of stuff happens. It's as if his sin has no seriousness, no consequence, no weight to it. Because David is denying his sin, and God loves him. God sends Nathan the prophet to shed light on what he does. And Nathan does this extraordinary thing because he knows David is not paying attention to his life spiritually because he knows he's downplaying and degrading sin and saying, it's not that big of a deal. 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 Nathan has to come at him slant. Do you know what do you know what I mean by that? He's got to come at him slant. He's got to come at him from the side because David just cannot see. And Nathan comes to him and tells him a story of a rich man with large flocks and herds who has a visitor to come and visit, and he doesn't want to slaughter any of his animals for this visitor to feed the visitor. So he goes to the poor man who has this one lamb that is his treasure, and he takes the poor man's lamb, slaughters that one man's lamb, and feeds that to his guest. 
David hears that story and he becomes incensed. He becomes angry. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to see the sin in others? Have you ever noticed that? Have you picked out any today since you've been in church? It's so easy to see this. It's so, it's so easy to see the sin of others. It's so hard to see our own. It, it, it's so easy to feel a righteous indignation. How, how could they do that as a follower of Jesus? How could they do that and never see it in ourselves? So Nathan has to tell David this story. David gets incensed. And in, in, at the very climax of the story, David is incensed. I'm ready. He's ready to deliver justice. Nathan looks him dead in the eye and says, David, you are the man. The story I'm telling is your story. And all of the walls of denial, all of the, of the walls of, of refusal to face facts, they all fall. And, and, and David has no choice but to look squarely at what he's done. And suddenly, he sees it for the first time. I don't know about you, but I, I have this experience in my own walk with Christ that very often what I will do is when something's not right in my life, it's almost like I keep it off to the side. And I don't really want to look at it. I ignore it. The Spirit of God might try to point it out to me, but, but if, if I'm not being careful and if I'm not being watchful, it will just kind of stay there. And, and I begin to believe the lie that people have believed who are followers uh, of Jesus and who, who, who are believers in the Old Testament. They begin to believe a lie that is so very common. And the lie is this, that you can have fellowship with sin and fellowship with God at the same time, especially if you just don't pay attention to the sin in your life. Or if you just say, it's, it's small, it's, it's nothing. It's nothing. Of course, you know, and I know you know this, but let me remind you that no great sin like David's ever starts great. It always starts small. Every one of his steps had, had smaller steps before it. And David had decided early when things were, were smaller that, that a look of lust or whatever it was. It's not a big deal. Nothing to be bothered with. And he believed the lie that he could fellowship with sin and at the same time fellowship with the Holy God. It cannot be done. It cannot be done. It cannot be done. No matter how much you deny it and no matter how you keep it off to the corner, it cannot be done. So Nathan brings this picture to David's mind and to David's eyes and he says to him, you are the man and the lights come on and David is crushed by what he has heard, but especially by what he finally sees. His self-examination helped by Nathan brings immediate desperation and confession and petition. David knows that Saul had done the very same thing. Saul had, been, Saul had been flippant with God's word, had disobeyed God's word. He was confronted by a prophet. He faked his confession and he lost fellowship with God. And, and suddenly David goes, oh no, I'm Saul. Oh no, I've just done what Saul has done. I, I don't want to lose my fellowship with God. I don't want to lose my kingdom. I don't want to lose my role as king. God has given me a high responsibility. I want to honor him. I really, I really did want to do his will. I want to do his will again. And, and I, I, I'm not going the way of Saul. I'm, I'm going to deal with this. And Psalm 51 is his dealing with this. And so I want you to notice with me, first of all, how he comes into this Psalm. He appeals to God's character. He goes right into God's presence. He's sinful. He knows it. He's guilty. He knows it, but he goes right into God's presence. And this is what he says. 
He says to the Father, he says this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. He's almost breathless, he's so desperate because though he had been blind to what he was doing, when the walls came down and his eyes came open, he could see how serious it was what he had done. Now, I want you to notice two things with me. I want you to notice how he, feel, how he appeals first to God's character. He appeals to God as a God of grace, a God of commitment to his people, a God of compassion. David knows what God said of himself in Exodus 34, where the Lord proclaims to Moses and to his people, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, a God gracious, a God slow to anger, a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, a God who keeps steadfast love for thousands and forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And David heard him and takes him seriously. He says, okay, I believe you're that kind of God. I have really done it, but I know where to go. Now, there's a curious thing about this passage because it's right after God says, and I just point this out to you, right after God says he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, he also goes on and he says this, but I am a God who will by no means clear the guilty. I thought you said you were a God who forgives. Yeah. What do you mean you will not clear the guilty? It was a mystery. How, how do you forgive, show mercy, and still say, I will never clear the guilty? How, how do you do that? David didn't know. He, he doesn't know as he comes back to God. He, he's a God who doesn't clear the guilty, but he is a God who forgives. What does he do with that? He doesn't know, but he goes to him and he says, I, I must have your help. I need your help. You're holy. I know you hate sin, but I know you're merciful. I know you're forgiving. I know you forgive rebellion and waywardness and failure. I know that somehow you, you won't clear the guilty. I, I know all this. I can't put it all together. I don't know how you could do this but I can only trust you that you're the kind of God that you say you are and that you will do what you say you will do. And so he simply cries out to God, this God, and he says, have mercy, cleanse me, forgive me. Notice something else that he does in verses one and two. He acknowledges that sin is a real problem. He uses three words to describe what he has done. Do you see them in the passage? Transgression, iniquity, and sin. Transgression is a word that, that means rebellion against God. Iniquity is a word that means a kind of waywardness from God, a drifting from God or a fleeing from God. And the third word, sin, is a failure before God, a failure to live up to what God desires. So David is finally owning what he's done, and it's pretty serious. He says, I have rebelled against my king. I've practiced high and kind of ungrateful treason. I've been wayward from the one who alone is good and who brings good in the pursuit of good. I've been an utter fool. I've pursued good in other places other than the one who alone is good and who alone can give good. That's what I've done. I've been a fool. I've been a traitor and I've been a fool. Thirdly, he says, I've been a failure. 
And this perhaps is the greatest tragedy. I've not been what God set me up to be. I've not used everything God gave me to, to, for his glory. For, uh, I haven't been the, the person he meant for me to be. Instead, because I was a rebel, because I was wayward, because I went my own way, I'm not what I should have been. I don't know if you've ever come to that realization, but that is one of the most painful realizations you can make in your life when it comes to sin. I am not what I could have been. I am not what I should be. I am not. Now, what I should have been. David's not denying any of this. He, he's, he's looking at it straight on. In fact, we see in verses three to six, he, he goes on and he confesses his sin fully. He holds nothing back. He says, I see it. I will not deny it. Everywhere I look, there it is. And that's one of the problems with sin. Once it becomes apparent to you, it is everywhere. And I think that's really a gift from God to say, hey, let's deal with this. Let's deal with this. Let's deal with this. So David is no longer making little of his sin. He assigns it the greatest significance as being finally against God and God alone, ultimately, the one against whom the offense and the, and the consequence is greatest. So he's not justifying, he's not denying, and he basically says, he says in this passage, he said, God, you're right, I'm wrong. You were right to condemn me. You were right to judge me guilty. I am, I have no excuse to offer full stop. David owns not total helplessness, but real hopelessness. He says, I have sin in me. And unless you cleanse me, I know me, I'm just going to go right back to it. Unless you change my heart, I'm going to go right back to it. And so you can just hear the desperation. It's interesting when you look at these words for sin and you hear David's pleas for cleansing, you're getting a sense of what he was seeing and what he was feeling in a way that I think we moderns just miss because we, we have a culture that downplays sin. We downplay sin. We make little of it. We accept a whole lot of compromise. And, and because we don't see consequences right away, we think we're fine. I had an incredible experience yesterday. I, went, I was at one of the surf projects with Rise Academy, and Rise Academy is an amazing place, operate on a shoestring budget. They are pouring themselves into underprivileged kids and their families. Uh, and they feed kids in the morning. They feed them at lunch. They give them a snack. They're sharing the gospel with these kids and raising them up, and it is an amazing, amazing ministry. The, uh, 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 the pastor and the director of the school uh, left a nice, comfortable suburban setting, went to Wattown. Anybody been to Wattown? Yeah. And went to and planted their family in Wattown to reach Wattown for Christ. And um, so God has just blessed, but they are operating on a shoestring. So we went into their, their building yesterday and part of what they have is the kitchen. And one of the things we discovered is that they not only have kids there, but they have a lot of roaches there. 
So we were picking up, we were picking up carpets and explosion of roaches. You would move a chair and roaches would come out of the chair. It's like, wow. We went into the kitchen. We had five of our ladies go into the kitchen and they're starting to clean up and And I'm not being critical. They are doing the best they can. They are doing 10,000 things. And when you're doing 10,000 things and your focus is on people, sometimes you just got to let the roaches go. I know some of you don't believe that. I know, I know. Well, I'm sorry. They go into the kitchen, they dig out a deep fryer and they're cleaning stuff up. It is a mess. They pull out a deep fryer, set it down, pull the lid off, roaches. Inside, well, let's just say that there, there were some things cooked in there. Uh, so we got grease and we've got all that comes with that, right? Are you with me? And it had been there a long time. And the smell was horrific. One of our ladies nearly passed out. She had volunteered to clean that. She was reaching her hand, they pulled it off, and she just about lost it. The other ladies, a couple screamed. It was just exciting. And, and she was making her way, and then she stopped, and, and one of the other ladies said, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. And she paused, and she gulped. She was nauseous, and she said, yes, I do. I have to do this. She reached down, took that deep fryer, cleaned that deep fryer up. And of course, I'm working on Psalm 51 and David's saying, please cleanse me. I've been defiled. The stench from my sin I know to you is awful. And suddenly I got a of what Christ did for me in that little kitchen with that deep fryer. He took his holy hands and reached into the stench of my life and pulled it out and cleaned me up so that he could use me. I saw Christ and I saw the cross in the kitchen yesterday. And I was suddenly reminded of the the power of sin and of the, the greatness of the offense before a God who knows no sin. And I've got to tell you the honest truth. When I got home yesterday after serving, I had to take some time away because I said, Lord, I'm I'm coming to the supper and I've just gotten a fresh reminder of what my sin looks like to you. Yes, I may downplay it. Yes, I may say it's not that significant or may not be that serious, but I have a better sense now 
of what it looks like to you. And I need for you to clean me up again. Because I want to be ready for today. I want to walk in ready for today. I don't want to proclaim the death of my Savior and have this stuff in my life. Because he deserves so much more. than what I would bring him if I weren't careful. Cleanse me, wash me. Do you notice how in verses seven through 12, as we close, that David, he's, he's in desperation, he's pled with the Lord, Wash me, clean me. He's confessed his sin before the Lord in three to six. In seven to 12, he, he does the most extraordinary thing. He goes back to his same request. He says, I, I want you to cleanse me. But then he says something so curious. He says, I, I, I want you to purge me with hyssop. Now, now he, he said to the Lord, I want you to cleanse me. I want you to wash me. I want you to get this out of me. He didn't, he didn't prescribe anything to the Lord, but here he prescribes a way to be clean. This is, this is so fascinating. Why does he do this? Now, hyssop, what is hyssop? Let's talk about what hyssop is and, and what he's after here. Hyssop is a plant. It's got lots of leaves and it's got kind of hairy tentacles on the leaves. It was common in that area and it was used in sacrifices for, for cleansing so you would slaughter an animal, the blood would be shed. Without the remission of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, Scripture says, as, as a reminder of the power and the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. So there were these, these sacrifices in the Old Testament that were to symbolize the seriousness of sin and the one who was coming to deal with our sin. But they would dip that, that hyssop and then they would sprinkle it as an act of cleansing. They also would use water to do the same thing, sprinkle as, as a symbol of cleansing. David does this most extraordinary thing here. He pauses and he finally prescribes to God. And I find this so fascinating. He says, now purge me with hyssop. Hyssop, he's saying, dip it in blood. Cleanse my life. Now, what, what is so amazing about this is when you look at the Old Testament, there is no prescribed sacrifice in the Old Testament for willful rebellion or for willful moral failure. There is none. There is no sacrifice offered. For deliberate sin, there's no sacrifice offered or suggested. Now, David, knowing Exodus 34, knowing God's promise to forgive, knowing that God said, I'm not gonna let things pass, he has no sacrifice he can offer. There's no, no alternative. And so he simply comes to the Father and he says, I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know the way you're going to do it, but I need a sacrifice. I can't offer it. Look at the end of Psalm 51. Do you see it? He said, you, you don't delight in sacrifices for this kind of thing. You don't want sacrifices for this kind of thing. What you want is a sacrifice of a, of a broken 
spirit and a what? A contrite heart. That's the only sacrifice that I can give you. There, there, there's no shedding of blood that I can do except my own. So I'm, I'm saying to you, purge me with hyssop. The word purge is a great word. Do you know what it means? It means de-sin me. De-fail me. Unsend me. Unfail me with hyssop. How is God gonna do that? He's holy. How is he gonna unsend anybody? It's this powerful picture. David said, I don't know, but I believe you can do it. Purge me with hyssop. And somehow I will be made whiter than snow. Look at verse 12. Something else I need. Create in me a clean heart and then renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the want to that I once had, the will to do your will. This is what I need from you. I don't know how you're gonna do it. It's gonna have to start with a purging because I'm defiled. There's a stench about my life. But then once you've done that, listen, listen, I need for you to create in me a clean heart because my heart is always tending toward jealousy and envy and hatred and wanting things that are not mine to want. That's my heart. I need a clean heart. And I need a new will, a will that wants your will, not my own. And you're the only one who can give it, so I'm saying to you, would you give this to me? This is the only possible solution. I don't even need to say it, do I? But I'm gonna go ahead and say it. Generations later, one of David's own would come. Fully God and fully man. And in his very son, God would shed his own blood, give his own life. For sinners, so that he could be true to himself, full of mercy, full of forgiveness, and yet not passing over any sin, still bringing judgment. Where did it all go? It went on Jesus. It went on him. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I know you can do it. Jesus was God's answer to David's plea. Jesus and his cross are God's answer to your plea and mine. So what I want you to see is that as we approach the table this morning, as we come to the table, as we come to the Lord's Supper, as we approach it, when we come to our time of examination, we've a lot to learn from David, but we know a lot more than David knew. And we have a higher level of accountability and responsibility. But what David did, you and I need to do. We have to go on and acknowledge this is who our God is. And sin is not a small thing in his sight. We have to go on and name our sin and claim it as our own. And be done with justifying and excusing and explaining all of that. Why it's somebody else's fault and not our fault. And how we couldn't help it. And just say, you're right. I'm wrong, full stop. And then finally plead for him 
to make the sacrifice that you cannot make. And for us, it is claiming the sacrifice that has already been made so that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us afresh from all sin. Now, here's what I want you to see. When you walk through that process of examination and confession, you walk through the supper reminded, celebrating what Christ has done in his cross, the fact that he's coming again, the height, depth, length, and breadth of his love. When you come out of that process, do you know how you come out? You come out with joy and you come out with strength because your sins are forgiven. Your heart has been made clean. And if you walk through the process, you begin to experience your will being changed and transformed so that more and more you want what he wants. Now, let me tell you why this is a terrible sermon. Because you're going to feel like right now, I just set you up to get your life straightened out. We're going we're to have a time of examination, but you're going to feel like that. I've just, I'm going to say, all right, we're going to take three minutes and I want you to get your whole life straightened out. That broken relationship, I want you to fix it. Those, those awful feelings that you have toward that person, I want you to fix those. Let God help you, all that kind of thing. Three minutes, boom, you're done. You should go out with joy and we're all good. I'm not saying that. I haven't had time, I, I don't have time to unpack all of this, but I'm gonna, I wanna unpack this. I really feel like this is so important as we come to this time of examination. Here's what God really wants. Do you see the end of Psalm 51? You see it, he wants, what, God, what does God want? Broken spirit and a contrite heart. That's really what he wants from you right now. You've got a sideways relationship and, and the truth of the matter is you don't have a clue what to do with it. God isn't saying you better know what to do with it and you better do it now. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, I'm gonna ask you a question. As you come into this, I know about that relationship with your son, your daughter. I know about that relationship with your husband, your wife. I know about that relationship with your neighbor. I know about that relationship with your coworker. I know about that relationship in the body of Christ. There's another brother or sister that you have not been kind to and, and they've not been kind to you and you guys are all kinds of crossways. I know about that. I know about that situation and, and, and you, you don't know what to do about it. I know about that one too, but listen, here's what I want from you. I want you to say over that relationship, I want you to say over that situation, I want you to say over that fear, over that anxiety, I want you to say over that thing. I, help me to want what you want in this. Help me to will what you will in this. Because I'm telling you, loved ones, listen, listen to me. This is a journey. This is like peeling back an onion. Sin comes in layers and you're not gonna do it just in one service with one sermon in three minutes and the Lord's Supper. But you can get started in the journey. All God wants to know is, will you will what he wills? Do you want what he wants? Just say to him today, Lord God, here are the issues and I'm giving them to you. And over this relationship, help me to want what you want. Show me what you want. Here is this situation. Here is this worry. Help me want what you want in this. Here is this dynamic at work and I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to stand for you in this situation, but help me to want what you want. I'm 
bringing all the stuff that I've been keeping off in the corners and I'm bringing it out here and I'm naming it and I'm claiming it and I'm saying, God, I'm sorry. And I'm asking you to cleanse me of that. And if it's a deep and it's a long-standing thing, then what I'm saying is, God, here it is. It's beating me and I'm not beating it. But I'm asking you, cleanse my heart. And give me a will to want your will in this thing. And if you can come to the table, wanting what he wants in those areas of your life. You're going to hear joy and gladness. Do you see that one part in Psalm 51? He says, let me hear joy and gladness again. You know what he's saying? He's saying, God, will you just, here I am. I'm asking your forgiveness. I'm owning my sin. Can you just let me hear you say, you still love me. Can you just let me hear you say, I'm still your child. Can I just hear you say that in Christ, I'm not a failure? That you bring the wayward home? Can I just, can you just speak? And God says, of course, that's who I am. I wanted to share that with you. Because this is a journey, loved ones. This is not a one night thing, a one day thing. It's a journey. But right here, right now, we're heading to meet the master at the table to reflect on his death to celebrate his second coming and to rejoice over his great love. And what that means is that we've got to take stock. Is my life cross-centered, dominated by the second coming, suffused with his love? Do I want what he wants? Wherever that is not the case, I own it. I ask for help. I'm ready for the table. Let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.